Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please also go to johnwarrenmedia.com if you'd like to know more about our work. You can submit a comment or several comments through our comment form there, or send an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, we're almost at the one-year point, and last week I concluded an episode that covered a lot of ground with sort of a, a look forward to an episode on stewardship. Now, before you move on to other things and ignore this episode altogether, I want to add simply the fact that this, I think this look at stewardship will be a little different than what you're accustomed to. When I think of stewardship, I have to candidly say, I think of sermons I've heard over the years. I've heard many of them on giving, on biblical giving, on on tithing, on giving sacrificially, on faith promise giving. Some of you are probably familiar with that concept. On giving generously, on giving until, quote, it hurts, end quote. And I've heard these sermons in various contexts some biblical and helpful, some not so biblical and not so helpful, but all under the heading of stewardship. So today we're going to try to unpack this concept, this biblical concept of stewardship. And admittedly, this is a little bit of a challenge. And and what, what this is not going to be today is is a Bible study per se, but I am going to read several passages of scripture just to hopefully talk through this concept because the concept of stewardship, of real biblical stewardship, is actually prevalent throughout the Bible and really throughout all of life, if we understand it correctly. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about stewardship in 1 Corinthians. So if you when you hear a sermon on on stewardship, chances are you'll hear something like 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. And here's what it says in the English Standard Version of the Bible. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And then he goes on to say, but with me, it is a very small thing in verse three that I should be judged by you or by any human human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. And then he goes on from there. Now, you probably already know Paul's talking to the church at Corinth. He does use the word steward and he talks about stewarding the mysteries of God. And then, and he says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. I probably heard that reference read in a sermon, oh, I bet hundreds of times over many, many years. 
It is required in stewards that they be found faithful. Now, what I what I always took this to mean, and and I want to be careful here, but I always walked away thinking this means I've got to try very hard to be faithful. And because I approach life from an analytical perspective, it's almost annoying how analytical I can be. I've approached this as a, wow, I've got to try really hard. And because I know who God is, because I know of his character, because I know of his transcendence, his being apart from us, his being immense, his being all the omnis and his having this character that is so powerful, I'm probably going to conclude that I'm a failure at stewardship because his standard after all, because of his righteousness, his standard is perfect. I'm a failure. I've got to try harder. And there's nothing wrong with trying harder, is there? But I think if we really look at the meaning of the word steward and we really dig into what the Bible actually teaches, actually teaches about stewardship, I think we get a little bit of a different definition. And that is a steward actually stewards the assets of another person. The assets are owned by another person. I really like the way Tim Challey says it in his book, Visual Theology. He, he says something like, you don't own it. It all belongs to God. Now, it, before you rush out and buy Visual Theology, let me tell you, it's an, it's an excellent book. It's not the deepest of books. It's got beautiful truth in it, just 10 chapters. It's a small book. You can buy it in paperback for not much money on Amazon. And and I, I would encourage you to do that. But the visual part of visual, visual theology isn't really that helpful to me through most of these chapters. But I just like the way Chalice says things. He has he has a way of kind of distilling it into into simple terms. Now he uses some stories, and you know, like a lot of authors do, that some are more applicable than others. But but I, I like this book, and I, I like the way he summarizes stewardship. You don't own it. It all belongs to God. Now, that, to me, for me, when I hear that, and when I read it in Scripture in various places, it really takes pressure off. It releases the pressure valve, knowing that God owns it. So this this notion of a, of a steward is, and throughout history, this is, this is just true, that a steward is not just trying their best, is not just sucking it up and trying harder. In fact, a steward doesn't exercise his or her own will. A steward is actually stewarding assets for another, and decisions are made. And I always picture a wealthy family that leaves their home to tour the world for months and months, and they leave it behind in the hands of a steward their estate and their, their assets, their property. And the steward's job in this and all other circumstances is really to manage the assets to reflect the interests of the owner, not their own interest. So a steward has to know their owner. Think about this for a second. To steward effectively, let me just say it real plainly, to be a good biblical steward, to practice biblical stewardship, 
we must know the owner of all the assets, and that is God. He owns it all. You don't own it. It all belongs to him. So to steward effectively, we have to know the will of God. To steward effectively, we have to know God's will. Now, I mentioned last time that you want to really have some fun, go into a Christian bookstore and ask someone who works there how many titles they have, or better yet, just search online, go to Amazon and search for books on the will of God. Oh my goodness, there are hundreds, if not thousands. One of the things that I remember when I was younger happening at my church were various conferences on how to determine the will of God. You've probably heard sermons on this. And I think it is important if we're going to worship God, we're going to serve God, we recognize who God is and the importance of our walk in Christ, the importance of our sanctification, our spiritual maturity, and so on, it is important to know God's will. But whether they intended it or not, what I heard at those conferences and in those sermons was, we're going to help you understand when you're faced with a decision, and they talked about open doors and closed doors and all kinds of things that frankly confused me. But we're going to help you when you're faced with a decision, you have two or three alternatives or some number, some finite number of alternatives. We're going to help you learn how to ascertain the will of God. And my thought was, what a relief. I need this formula. I need to understand this because this seems to be really mysterious. And then I remember thinking, wow, people are hypocrites. Evangelicals are hypocrites because they... They seem to be making decisions all the time without even considering the will of God. And I, I kind of know enough about Scripture to know that they didn't, it doesn't seem like they consider the will of God at all in that decision. And so I really wanted to know this formula, this notion, this how do I determine the will of God? And if I'm faced with choices A, B, and C, how do I know which one to choose? Now, I have the pleasure of teaching 11th and 12th graders, two courses every year to 11th and 12th graders at a school in Orlando called Circle Christian School. It is a wonderful blessing to get to do that. Sounds cliche, but I, I get more out of this process than those students do. But one of the things that I've observed over the years is that adults, well-meaning adults, say stupid things to students at this age. And we take this big bag of rocks that we carry around, this burden that we carry around, and we put it on their backs and we say things like, the decisions you make over the next few years will determine the course of the entire rest of your life. And we say that with good intentions. We put tremendous pressure on them. We give them the impression that that you can't fail, you can't make mistakes, you better get this right. And for Christian students, for evangelicals, we, we, what they hear us say is, you better determine God's will for your life. You better learn the formula, make the right decisions. And then the clincher is, you better have perfect grades, your test scores better be good because the college board rules the world at this stage of your career. 
You better go to the right school, whatever that means, and you better perform at a very high level, and then you better make the right job choice. And I think sometimes we're, in a weird way, we're trying to kind of relive our childhood through and, and correct some mistakes maybe that we made with students at this age. But I watch students go through this process. In fact, they'll ask me, they'll as we get to know each other throughout the school year, and with some of these students, I have them for two years in various classes because my classes rotate, the subject matter rotates every other year. And I learn a lot about them and how they think. They'll ask me to be a reference for them. They, they do that with faculty and, and administration and staff sometimes. And sometimes they'll hang around after class. I have a group of young men, and I really enjoy this, who, who just hung out for lunch between periods second and third periods at circle the classes are they, we use block scheduling and they're longer but there's a 40 minute window for lunch and they would hang out and just the consistent concern the consistent question that students ponder at this age especially the smart sort of self-starting ones with families that you know really engage in thinking things through well and that's true of just about everybody at this school it's amazing if you're in the area and have a chance to get to know it i would urge you to but it's just a special place with special families made special by those families but the thing that they struggle with is how do i make these decisions and as i look at the life coaching industry for adults the the world of counselors and therapists and business book writers and self-help writers, I really believe determining how to make decisions and for the Christian, knowing God's will in decisions is an absolutely critical element that is really not taught well, is mistaught in the church. So, and maybe that's just me and my perspective and my background, but I think it's helpful to really unpack what biblical stewardship is. Paul mentions it, I think, four or five times. I think it's five. I counted them in his epistles. And yet, I still think it's confusing. And we we hear, oh, you must be a good steward. And to be a good steward, you've got to try harder and exercise good judgment. In fact, we'll, we'll sometimes quote Romans 12, too, and talk about the renewing of our minds and you and this self-sacrificing present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And we'll talk about stewardship in terms of sexual purity, which is certainly one of the things we should steward is our bodies, but we don't really get it right. We think of it as self-help, self-effort, and so on. When in fact, biblical stewardship has more to do, I believe, based on scripture, from what God's will is. It is executing the will of the owner of the assets. I hope that is a helpful way to look at biblical stewardship. So I want to clumsily read a couple of sections of scripture. And I, I always worry about this because I'm not a pastor and the way I study scripture and the way I teach it at school at circle is, is to always, always, always teach it in context. That's hard for me to do here on a podcast so, so I'm going to read a couple of sections of scripture, one, one being Ephesians chapter five, verses 15 to 17, because I think, I think we can unlock what real biblical stewardship is 
if we're careful here and we understand just a few of these references. So Ephesians five fifteen to 17, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he goes on to say, Paul goes on to say in verse 18, and do not be drunk with wine, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and so on. But he says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So I think the biblical definition of stewardship is something like our execution of the will of God, our requirements pursuant to God's will. Understanding God's will must be an important part of this. Now, I want to look at one other thing. I find this other reference curious, and this is almost an aside, but not quite. It's Romans eight twenty seven, and I'm going to be starting a series on Romans soon on this podcast that because I, I think it is the letter that God used to really change my life. We're not going to do some two-year verse-by-verse study, which I'd like to do, but we're going to hit the highlights and just kind of move through it because it is life-changing. But in Romans 8 is a beautiful chapter. You might remember it from verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Just beautiful promises. Uh, there's a section here that talks about the sufferings of this present time and, and, and can't be compared to future glory, really talks about who God is and just the beauty of the struggle on this earth and how we, we're waiting for our adoption. But in, in verse 27, it says, and he who searches, this is chapter eight of Romans, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, from this point forward, and I'm not sure I've done very well to this point, but from this point forward, I'm, I'm warning you that I am not going to do justice to this topic because it is broad and it is deep and I really don't want to give you my thoughts. I don't want to be guilty of eisegesis, that is reading into scripture. I want to do exegesis, that is just talking about what the Bible actually says. But what it says is, in my own words, is is that the New Testament summary of the law is to glorify God with all our hearts and so on, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, I believe that if we were to distill God's will into, you know, what really is God's instruction to us through our sanctification, through our spiritual growth process on this earth, it is to do those things. If you think about it, that's the broad brush way of saying, this is how you are to live. Glorify God, bring glory. And if I'm looking to make a decision and I've got to choose between A and B or A, B and C, or 10 choices, 10 paths. If I really want to know which one to choose, if, if said differently, if I want to be a good steward, 
Let's say I recognize that he owns it all. It all belongs to God. I don't own any of it. But how do I make a decision? How do I then make these choices? The way I make them is according to the will of God. Therefore, I have to ask myself, does this glorify God? Yes or no. And am I able to, through this decision, am I able to love my neighbor as myself as I make this decision? Now, some decisions are a little more nuanced, aren't they? They're a little harder. You might say, I've got all these choices. And yes, I think I could glorify God in all these choices. And wait a minute, I could love my neighbor through any of these choices. I want to propose something to you. And, and I don't think I'm stretching scripture when I say this, but I just want to propose a new way of thinking, perhaps that might be helpful to us Christians as we look at these choices. If it's true that you've done all the critical thinking, you've done a cost benefit analysis, if appropriate, you've looked at your family, you've looked at your objectives, you've looked at, at all the considerations that you consider when making a decision, and you decide, I can glorify God in any one of these two or three options. And I can also love my neighbor as myself through any one of those options. Then I think you simply have to do the following. Pick one. Seek counsel from others. Look at the impact. Ask a spouse if you have one. Family members, trusted advisors, a pastor if it's a significant decision. Seek counsel. Seek wisdom. Examine all the facts and then make a decision. But I think the important thing for us to do, and I know this probably seems so simple, but it's not simple to execute. The important thing for us to do then is commit to glorifying God and loving our neighbor as ourselves after we've made the decision, as we execute the implications of the decision. Let me give you an example. I encounter students all the time who say, you know, I'm thinking of school A, school B, or school B for undergraduate college. And I can go to all three of those almost for free because I have good test scores. Or it's going to cost my family about the same. And I've talked to my parents and they agree that I could go to any one of those places and we can afford them and the cost is relatively close and they're all equidistant from home or, or whatever. I tell students the following, and I, I know, I know this is counterintuitive and simple, but make the best decision you can make, but don't just grind yourself into the ground trying to make this decision. Commit the key commitment you need to make is not to analyze it to death after you've done all the appropriate diligence, but to focus your effort, your commitment on ensuring that you glorify God and love your neighbor as yourself after you've made the decision. In other words, this is kind of the cutesy part of the way I look at this, commit to making that decision the best of all the alternatives by doing those things. Executing well, getting up early in the morning, staying in scripture, living a life characterized by prayer, following Christ, making good decisions, 
giving it the appropriate effort, stewarding the resources that you steward well, but not based on just your perspective and your effort, stewarding them because they're owned by God. They belong to him. Not stewarding them in an anxious, uptight, oh my goodness, I can't make a mistake way, but stewarding them for God's glory because they're his. And I don't think that's a subtle difference. I look at sports teams, and and those of you who aren't into sports, forgive me, but I think you'll get this. I, I think this is, is self-evident, although it's not so self-evident when you're in the middle of a sport. Golf instructors will tell you, good golfers who've maybe played on PGA Tour before will tell you that if you obsess what not to do, and I think I mentioned this many, many episodes ago, but if you obsess over the negative possible outcomes of a shot, chances are you won't hit the ball well. On the other hand, if you focus, if you obsess, and what professional golfers obsess over is the target and the conditions around the target. They obsess over the successful outcome. I know that in the case of team sports, a team can, the Atlanta Braves won the World Series last year, and I've been watching some of their games this week as the season thankfully is underway, and I've noticed that they seem to be playing very tightly. Their pitchers are tighter, batters are a little more uptight, and even the rhetoric as they're interviewed is uptight because they're the world champions, and they're expecting they're playing like they're playing for the World Series every game, and you can't do that. I mean, it's just me observing them. You can't do that. Well, with stewardship, the pressure, in a sense, is off. God owns the assets. I don't have to stay up at night wringing my hands because something might happen to one of my assets or because my contingency plan, which is, which is you know four levels deep, could go wrong. I tend to want to do that. I tend to think about eventualities that have a very low probability of occurring. And so I think this notion of biblical stewardship actually allows us to do what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, be not anxious. Isn't it interesting how much he talked in his earthly ministry about anxiety and fear So I I think it's important and I would urge you to study this concept of stewardship further. But I want to read, there's a section, another section, and I'm sorry, I know I'm jumping around here through various sections of scripture, but there's there's a beautiful section in Paul's letter to Timothy. And Paul's his mentor, spiritually speaking, and Timothy's a young man a godly young man, and Paul's giving him instruction in 1 Timothy. And I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 6 and following. And I just think this is beautiful. We get to eavesdrop on Paul talking to Timothy about the implications of stewardship, in a sense. He says in verse 6 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now that sounds a lot like that section in, I think it's Matthew 5 or 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. So if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. He's almost quoting directly from the Sermon on the Mount there. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, watch how he turns the corner here. This is beautiful. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And it goes on. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That is a summary of stewardship if I've ever read one. It talks about all of many of the things that we are to steward, primarily what we think of, and I just did this exercise in my classes because we covered this subject of stewardship, I asked the students, what exactly do we steward? I want to read you from their list, and there might be some redundancy because I scribbled these down as they were calling them out. The first thing everybody thought of was either one of two things, time or money. So, And we do. We steward those things, don't we? Time, money. Somebody said the gospel. We steward the gospel. Tim Challies mentions that in Visual Theology in chapter 10. Relationships, they mention. That's excellent. Uh, relationships with other people, relationships with God, our bodies, both, both sexually and from a health standpoint. We spent some time talking about that. Our talents. We even steward our opportunities or our jobs. Somebody even said we steward the environment and we steward our hearts. I think this is an excellent list, and I kind of want to go through these just quickly just to tell you some of the things that we discussed. But suffice it to say, stewarding time is difficult. Realizing that God owns our time, if we realize who God is, who man is, and how God relates to man, those kind of foundational principles that all of Scripture teaches us, then we realize that our time is not our own. Now, 
does that mean that I've got to have a day timer and I've got to account for every seven minute segment and I've got to use it all productively? And if you uh, are in my way, get out of my way, I've got to move on to the next thing and I can't care about people. No, no, that's not what it means. What, what is the right balance between work and leisure? What about family life? How do we achieve work life balance? Those things are artfully executed, aren't they? And I tend to be on the work all the time, get up early side, but I can also waste time and I'm constantly kind of looking for that balance. It is just helpful to me. It presses the release valve, the relief valve. If I think about this in terms of God owning the time. So what about money? This is too broad a topic for a few minutes on a podcast, but We do steward our money. The passage we just read and many others talk about the proper view of money. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve God and money. And yet I don't want you to walk away from this podcast saying that that guy, John, with the podcast that I listened to said that money's not important. We can go spend all our money. We ought to go give it all away. We all ought to go radical like David Platt said and, and just spend it all and I don't think David Platt intended that, but in Radical, you, you can kind of read that a certain way and say, I got to take all my money and move somewhere and become a missionary and devote myself to the gospel and not have any money anymore. And what a great way to live. Well, I don't think that's necessary. I think recognizing that God owns your money and you can not have to clinch it to where your knuckles are white. You can release your grip on money and live generously. The students even talked about what is appropriate. Is the Old Testament tithe 10% or not? Is it 10% on gross income or net income after tax? Is it, in other words, pre-tax or post-tax income that we tithe on? Is it 10%? Is it some larger number? Are we to give sacrificially? What does that even mean when people say give sacrificially? I think it's an attitude, in short, it's an attitude of the heart. I believe, I believe it's at least 10%, and I think if you're squabbling over gross or net, you probably have the wrong idea here. I find that giving 10% of gross income feels about right intuitively to me. If I, but if I recognize that God owns it all, then I give to other causes that make sense to me. Other needs arise. Other opportunities arise to bless other people. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing. I don't believe we give to get. I don't believe we give to earn God's favor. And the more we give, the more our faith grows. And the more our faith grows, the more we give. I, I think those concepts are misused, but I think living generously is, is just a wonderful way to live. And it's the biblical way to live. And it's the right thing to do before God is a good steward. If we're really looking to glorify him and love our neighbors as ourselves. I think we can both be responsible financially. We can make Dave Ramsey happy and be responsible financially. (laughs) Sorry, that was a cheap shot. Dave does great work, but I think we can apply his, the principles he espouses. How about that? And we can also live generously so we can be responsible fiscally while living extravagantly generously toward others. So that's the kind of time and money and, excessive recreation young people in my classes sometimes struggle with gaming and spending hours and hours of wasted time if you're a parent you probably encounter that from time to time with some students 
Those are things that are important to address, but recognizing God's ownership of those things, I think is critical. And then then you get to the gospel, stewarding the gospel, sharing the gospel. One of the reasons that I almost every podcast episode want to remind myself and you of the gospel, that is that Jesus Christ, God's son, truly, fully God, truly, fully man came to this earth, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was executed on a cruel Roman cross on our behalf, conquering sin and death, was raised on the third day, appeared to many, ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the father, that providing our redemption, our justification by faith, so that if we put our trust in him, turn from our sins and trust in him, we may be saved. He will, in fact, save us, redeem us, repurchase us, and clothe us then in his righteousness. I want to say that every day to someone, and I want to mention it every week on this podcast, and we are all to live our lives stewarding the gospel well. We're to live our lives in the context of the gospel and aware of the fact that we're living our lives before God, living lives quorum Deo, before the face of God, literally. So we do steward the gospel. Get involved in gospel ministry. It's painful because you're going to be around a bunch of sinners like me. But yes, engage in gospel ministry. You can't steward the gospel well if you don't engage. If you sit on the couch and don't engage, and if you wait around looking for the perfect ministry, you'll be waiting around forever. It's just a fact. So yes, we are to steward the gospel well. So we've got time, money, and the gospel. What about relationships? How do we steward relationships? Well, you know how we do that. We recognize that we are all made in God's image. We don't need a life coach and a self-help lecture and 45 books on how to live life and win friends and influence people and build your network and have followers on social media and clicks and likes and all the rest. We don't need coaching on those things if we're living our lives humbly extending agape, that is love that is not based on reciprocation, caring deeply about the needs of the cherished person is my way of saying it, one way of saying it, then we're stewarding relationships well. Call others and just ask them how they're doing. It's amazing how many people never ask, how are you doing? What can I do to help you? What can I pray about? So we steward relationships. We also steward our relationship with God, and that's a little harder. That gets painful because I start to sound really demanding when I say you can't steward the relationship with God. In fact, you can't steward any of this stuff on this list unless we know God because remember, he owns it all. And so if we're stewarding it, we must know him. And to know him, we must spend time in scripture. We don't mysteriously know God through some other methodology. Now we pray and the Holy Spirit informs us, but scripture, God has disclosed his will to us. He's disclosed his word to us in scripture. We have to spend time in it, studying it, not just reading it because we're required to, but actually studying it, mining it for the riches of its truth. So moving on, we've got a relationship with relationships with others, relationship with God, our bodies, 
Now, here's one that over the years, I, I got to admit, I've failed at here and there. But eating healthy is important, isn't it? Exercise is important. Because I'm a hypochondriac and no other reason after my cancer experience 18 years ago, I decided that when I turned 50 that I would go see a cardiologist. Now, the good news is everything checked out just fine. But one of the things that surprised me was his emphasis on exercise. Exercising, I forget what he said now, but I do more than this, but I think it was 40 minutes a day, four or five days a week depending on the level of that, the intensity of that exercise. But taking care of our bodies is important. Sexual purity is obviously important. Scripture reinforces that again and again. So we steward our bodies. If we recognize God owns them, then we don't have to become obsessive and compulsive over every little thing. We, We can recognize that we don't own them, but we can steward them well. Our talents... There's another one. Well, I don't like to do that because I might be good at it, but it's embarrassing or it's... No, we, we are responsible for stewarding our talents. Our jobs, we don't even think of it that way, do we? We think we're working for a company or working for ourselves or working for money. No, God owns our job too. The environment, now there's one. Some Christians get that and others say, nope, that's something only progressive leftists do. Not not to get into the Green New Deal and global warming and all the rest, but it is incumbent on all of us to be good stewards of this earth that we're on, this sphere that we're on. We can be good stewards of the environment and still be conservative politically or still be a biblical Christian. Those things aren't in conflict, are they? And then stewarding our hearts. Stewarding what we, what we see, what we long for. And being in this sinful state, you know, we've talked many times about the implications of the fall. It makes all of this harder, doesn't it? But we nonetheless are to recognize that God owns them. We are to make decisions based on his will. So I hope this is helpful. It's, it's a helpful reminder to me. Biblical stewardship is not just, hey, suck it up and give more financially. It's a recognition that God owns it all and that we are to act in the best interest of the owner. We are to make decisions based on the will of the owner. And we must know the owner to understand the owner's will. And that is a beautiful thing. We have not ju- done justice to this topic. If I've maybe hit a nerve or created a question, I hope you'll contact me. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com or send an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. I'm so excited to tell you that next week we are going to do an overview of the book of Romans. We're going to start an overview of of the book of Romans, and we're going to talk about historical context. Let me tell you for just a moment the reason this is special. This is special to me because God used a study of this book to unlock biblical truth that I had misunderstood my entire life. And even if you're a student of theology and you say, wait a minute, I've got this, I've heard 
countless series on this. I think there's some truth here in this book, particularly in the first 12 chapters, but in the entire letter, there's some truth that if we can look at it properly, if we can just, even in this podcast format, just look at it properly through the right lens, through the lens of scripture in the context that Paul wrote it to the church at Rome, given what was going on at that time, I'll give you one little nugget. The Christians in Rome would have been thought of by the other people in Rome, the non-Christians in Rome, as atheists. How about that one? They were outcasts. They were atheists because they didn't worship the idols that were so commonly worshipped by society in Rome. Now let that sink in for a minute. And then as you read the book of Romans, and I hope you will take an opportunity to, to read it. It's not long in preparation for next week. But as you read it, some of these perspectives on historical context might be very helpful. My prayer is that it is. It is an honor to have you here as part of this podcast. I hope you will send an email along to john at johnwarrenmedia.com if I can respond to anything or answer any questions. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you go to get your podcasts. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.